Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We come to that final section of chapter 2. So we're in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 26. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 26. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one Who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us now. Father in heaven, uh, instruct us from the scriptures. They were written for our instruction, and so we ask that we might be blessed to receive that from you through your spirit this very evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of a, uh, uh, an English missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. He was one of the, uh, the so-called Cambridge Seven. And um, uh, C.T. Studd came from a wealthy family. He had everything going for him. He was a Cambridge scholar and he was also a very successful athlete. <clears throat> but despite all those advantages and opportunities that uh, that status uh, afforded him, he decided to dedicate his life to foreign missions. And so he uh, spent time on the mission field, laboring in China, later in India, and then finally in Africa, and founded a missionary society that, uh, under a different name, still exists to this day. You might not have heard his name, uh, but he's uh, most commonly associated with a a poem that he wrote. And uh, a verse of it goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So C.T. Studd, who who came from wealth and had wonderful opportunities, uh, 
he seems to have discovered that there is a labor that's not in vain. And he pursued that. What uh, the preacher, Solomon, the Kohelet, has been doing is investigating all kinds of possible ways he could find meaning in life. Uh, he figured out early on that pleasure doesn't satisfy, ultimately, not, not, uh, not in any enduring or lasting way. And so he moved on to explore work, and that's what he's been focused on in the recent passages we've been looking at. And as he did, and as he considered his work and, and the vanity of that too, he came face to face with his mortality, came face to face with the reality of death, death, the great leveler, death that comes to the wise as well as the foolish, death that comes to the rich as well as the poor. And he realized that the wise dies just like the fool. And there was this sense in which he perceives that's sort of unfair. And even worse, when the wise dies, just like the fool, he has to leave everything behind. Leave it to someone else. And so this reveals a new wrinkle in the unfairness of life and the unfairness of death. Somebody else is going to get all my stuff. Well, as we consider these verses, and as they reveal to us that there is indeed uh, what missionary C.T. Studd discovered, a labor that is not in vain, what we'll come to see as we look this passage over is that the God blesses, and we'll say the Lord Jesus blesses our work by enabling us to profit in this life and for the age to come. I think that's what we can get from this text, and we'll look at it under two points. We're going to consider, first of all, working in a fallen world, and then secondly, contentment in a faithful Redeemer. So working in a fallen world noticed, and perhaps you have as well, uh, the goal of many in our day is to get to retirement. Everybody wants to do that, and uh, if possible, early retirement. To reach the point where there's no more work. I can just do what I want. Pastor Mark even spoke to that, that, um, <clears throat> that concept of retirement where I can just do what I want to do. I don't have to work any longer. And that's the goal, it seems, of so many. I even have a longtime friend who, who retired early. He's only about my age. I think he might actually even be younger than me. And he's been able to just retire. But that seems to be a kind of an idol, perhaps, of our society. But I think it's doubtful, and I think Scripture bears this out, that it is doubtful that most will ever really find continuous leisure satisfying. They're going to end up looking for something to do. They're going to end up looking for satisfaction somewhere else because leisure isn't going to do it. Retirement and just freedom from having to work isn't going to provide that satisfaction. Why won't, why won't it do that? Well, a big part of the answer to that is because you and I, as image bearers of God, were created for work. 
It's built into us and into the way God made us. It's built into the creation mandate, as we call it. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To just laze around? No. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is not a consequence of the fall. It's part of the creation order. God made us to work. We are made to be workers. But we are workers now in a fallen world. And because of our fallenness, our flesh doesn't like to work. And when I say our flesh, I'm referring not to our physical being, but our hearts. Our rebellious, sinful hearts don't like to work. Our hearts are sluggards. And as you consider this text we're looking at tonight, you see how over and over uh, the word toil comes up. Eight times, uh, just in the first section of this little passage we're looking at this evening. And toil isn't presented in a positive light here either. It's presented in a very burdensome, negative sense. And if you take the Hebrew root word from which the translators uh, derive the word toil, the, the Hebrew word for work actually occurs 11 times. And so it occurs else, you know, a couple times as um, labor or something different. But that word in the Hebrew means labor, it means toil, it can even mean trouble. So there's that sense to it. The, the burdensomeness and, uh, and the difficulty of work. Now, back in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, Solomon reached this conclusion that all of his work, all of his pursuits were vanity. And then as we come to this passage we're looking at this evening, he, he again and again laments the fact that all that he has, all that he's acquired, all the things he's worked for, he's going to have to leave behind. It's reminiscent of uh, Psalm 39, verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now, Psalm 39 is the Psalm of David. And although Solomon went on this tremendous and uh, extensive uh, investigation, trying to find meaning in life and trying to discern whether there's value in work or is it all just vanity. It would seem that his father David had discovered the answer in the previous lifetime. David wrote those words, man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. And we've got real life biblical examples of this very thing that we can read about in the scriptures. Think of Solomon himself. Solomon built all these great works. He built this, what must have been a fabulously impressive house for himself and one just like it for his queen. And he built the temple of God. Presumably the most fabulous, ornate, and expensive place of worship in the ancient world. Solomon accomplished all that. And he's very, very wise, of course. And then he was succeeded by his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not wise. 
Rehoboam rejected the counsel of the wise elders who had attended to his father Solomon. He listened to the counsel of his, his peers, the young men with whom he'd grown up. And as a result of following the advice of his peers rather than the advice of the wise men, he lost the kingdom. And the kingdom of Israel was never again united. It divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He got to keep, Rehoboam did, uh, in the name of David, he got to keep one tribe. And some people have ex uh, speculated as to, you know, when, when Solomon is writing some of these words and lamenting, not knowing whether the person who comes after him would be wise or be a fool, he kind of saw evidence in his son Rehoboam that he might not be the wise son he might have hoped he would be. But you've also got the example of Hezekiah. And I bring this one up because I've read the account of Hezekiah again recently in my own Bible reading. Hezekiah was a wise and good and godly, upright king of Judah. In fact, the scriptures say that there hadn't been one like him before in Judah, and there was never one like him after. He was the pinnacle of the Judean monarchy in terms of uprightness. He exercised tremendous reforms in his kingdom, did great things for the glory of God. His successor was a man by the name of Manasseh. His son, his own son, his own flesh and blood, and Manasseh was the most wicked king ever in Judah. And his wickedness was so great, and he undid all the reforms of his father, and he led the people of Judah into such wickedness and rebellion and foul disobedience to God that God determined he was going to destroy the kingdom of Judah. And he did. There were a few more kings after Manasseh. One of them was actually very good. His name was Josiah. But it wasn't enough to turn back the inevitable wrath of God that he'd already determined to bring upon Judah. So you've got a wonderfully obedient and holy and wise king like Hezekiah, succeeded by the likes of Manasseh, or Solomon himself. And his successor was Rehoboam. One of the commentaries that I read this week, uh, written by Max Rogland, he's writing in the ESV, Expository Commentator. He says, if, if, if a person is highly accomplished, as the preacher was, then it's almost certain that one's successor will represent a decline in some way, this inevitable handing over of one's life work leads the preacher to a low moment of despair over his life of toil. Now consider all that in light of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus told a parable. We call it the parable of the rich fool because this is a man who was very successful. His crops produced abundantly and he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to fill those barns with all this produce that my fields are bringing forth. And then I'm going to kick back and live the easy life. You find that parable in Luke 12. And the conclusion of the parable is this. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's the same question Solomon is asking. Or Jesus is um, known to have instructed us in the Sermon on the Mount to not store up treasures on earth. Turn with me there to Matthew 5. 
Matthew, oh, excuse me, I guess this is going to be chapter, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus said in John 6 verse 27 do not labor for the food that perishes so we've got solomon examining this this vexing problem of work and building up wealth and possessions and then having to leave them to someone else and jesus is showing us the solution don't don't labor for the food that perishes don't store up treasure on earth Remember the day of your death and that you won't be able to take anything with you on that day. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching that we shouldn't work. He wasn't teaching that we shouldn't seek to uh, increase our, our material wealth. Labor is necessary for us. Toil is necessary for us. We have to do it. That's how we get our living. I mean, that's, that's sort of something that's self-evident and uh, we know that just from experience but it's even a command of scripture second thessalonians 3 10 paul is writing to the thessalonians and saying for even when we were with you we would give this command if anyone is not willing to work let him not eat so we need to work that's how we acquire our daily bread that's by god's design it's according to his providence furthermore Labor is good. Toil is good. God gives us callings, and he calls us to do what he's called us to do, and to do it with all of our might, do it, to do it as unto him. So let's remember that. It's, work is necessary. Work is good. But consider these two things as we conclude this point. As to your labors, whatever you do, considered under the sun, Brothers and sisters, let's just accept and embrace the reality that we're going to leave it to others. You know what they say, you can't take it with you. And it wouldn't be of any value or use even if you could take it with you. Just accept the fact that you're going to leave it to others. Proverbs says, Godly man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And remember this too, that even in your labors under the sun, you can do work and invest in things that will endure. And that brings us to our second point. Contentment in a faithful redeemer. Look with me again in our text at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Now, we can read verse 24 and interpret that 
or hear it in a cynical way. We can hear it in a carnal way, like what's the, it's almost a what's the use sort of statement. Well, there's nothing better than just to eat and drink, and you know, there, there's that existential statement. Paul uh, quotes it in his letters, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's not what this verse is saying. That's not the message here. This is a God-glorifying declaration of blessing. It's saying that it's a good thing that God allows you to do. He allows you to enjoy the fruit of your toil. He allows you to eat and drink before him with gladness and with thanksgiving. This is the first in several pa- of several passages in Ecclesiastes where we are called to enjoyment. What a God we serve. That he calls us to enjoy his good gifts. You work and you get your food and you get your other benefits from your work. These are good things. These are blessings from God. And you can enjoy them. God enables you to enjoy them. He allows you to enjoy them. And he is even pleased by your enjoyment of his good gifts to you. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God likes for us to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. And just to set that in a little bit more perspective, again, quoting from the ESV expositionary, expositional commentary, the writer says, earlier, earlier the preacher discovered that an entirely happy-go-lucky approach to life is unsustainable, but nevertheless, the Lord's gifts are real, and they are to be gratefully received and enjoyed. How liberating, how good and gracious and kind of God to give us things to enjoy. Now, we can look at verse 23, and we see some somewhat harsh realities. The preacher observes, for all man's days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, and to, that, to an extent, that's true. Yes, our work is mingled with sorrow. And we know, of course, that that's because of the fall. God cursed the ground when man sinned against him, when he ate the fruit that he was told not to eat. And so in Genesis 3, starting in verse 17, God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that's the answer to the question of, well, why does it have to be so hard? Why does work have to be difficult? Why can't it all just go smoothly? Well, it's because we live in a fallen world. And the rest of that verse shows what happens when we obsess over our stuff, when we obsess over our work, when it consumes us. He says, uh, even in the night, his heart does not rest. When your work is your idol, it's going to keep you awake at night. 
when you're consumed by it, when you obsess over it, you won't be able to sleep because you'll always be thinking about the next thing, the next problem to solve, the next job to do, the next whatever. Worrying about what you might lose. But the fact is, God gives to you and me, he gives to each one of us, a, what I, I like that word portion. In, the, uh, in verse 21 of our text in the ESV Bible, it, makes, it uses the, uh, the word everything. And I guess there is sort of a, um, a trans, that's a translational decision. And the word carries with it that sort of comprehensive thing. But the, the, word, the word is really portion. It's like your lot. It's what God has apportioned to you. And what he apportions to you is not the same exact portion as he apportions to you. God has ordained a lot, a portion, for each one of us. That has in view his total provision for your life. Everything he has ordained for you. You can think of it not to be... um, irreverent, but you can kind of compare it to like a benefits package for employment. You get offered a job and they say, okay, we're going to pay you this much. And in addition to that, we'll also maybe give you a company car or we'll provide these insurances for you and you'll get this much vacation. Well, God's portion to us is similar to that. It's our lot. It's just more comprehensive. It has to do with all of life, everything he has ordained for your life. And as I said, it's not the same for everyone. God apportions it. Now, when it comes to our lot, when it comes to our portion, there are some things we can change. There are some things we can improve. We can um, build upon, like those people who, in Jesus' parables, who received a certain amount of talents, and they went out and worked with them, and they gained more talents for them. And our catechism is very instructive on this because in the question, in the questions about the, uh, the eighth commandment, it asks, what's the eighth commandment? Of course, the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. And we know what that prohibits. But the catechism also asks the very important question, what does the, what does the eighth commandment require? What is required in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer, listen carefully. The Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. So we read that commandment every month before we take the Lord's Supper. And we read right over it, thou shalt not steal. But do you realize that commandment is telling you, you have a lawful you have an obligation to lawfully procure wealth and to advance your own estate and the estate of others. So there are some things that we can change. We can work hard, we can invest, we can accumulate wealth, and that's a good thing. But there are other things that we don't have any control over in our lot. There are other aspects of our portion that we can't change, that we didn't get to choose, and that we can't do anything about you you had no control over who your mom and dad would be you have no control over the genetics and all the things that come from your parentage 
There are certain aspects of your physical attributes that you just can't change. I mean, if you don't like your hair color, I suppose you can color it. If you want to be more brawny, you can go work out. But there are certain basic attributes of your being, of your, your body and even your personality that are just the way they are. And you don't have any control over that. Certain aspects of your health. Events including life-changing events. These are all part of God's portion for you. And the lesson for us in all of this is contentment. To be content with our lot, with our portion. To seek to cultivate and to be good stewards of it, of our portion, and to improve as we're able, but be content with that as well as with what we can't change. Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that's the goal contentment contentment in our faithful redeemer look at verse 26 with me of our text it says for the and this this has to do with our lot with our portion to to a certain extent for to the one who pleases him god has given wisdom and knowledge and joy <coughs> but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases god now we can read that and we can, we can interpret it in the context of being under the sun. And what it's telling us is essentially that God gives and he takes as he pleases. The translators chose to use the, the terms sinners and uh, the one who pleases God. But what it's really saying is God gives to the person it pleases him to give to and you can wonder well why do they have that car and I have this one or why do they get to live in that house and I have this one and it's just God's providence it God uh, gives as Job said he he's the one who gives he's the one who takes away we can also however see verse 26 in eternal perspective God gives to whom he pleases. He gives to the one who pleases him. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are pleasing in his sight. And he gives to you accordingly. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Let no one boast in man, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Or consider the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All things are yours. I think about... Uh, in connection with verse 26, God uh, giving 
wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one who pleases him. But the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. You know, we see a picture of that in, in Israel's uh, uh, occupation of the land of Canaan. And God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 He's prepping his people for this, and he says, look, you're going to go in, and you're going to occupy houses that you didn't build. You're going to enjoy the fruit of vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to live in cities that you didn't build. Those wicked Canaanites built all these things, and I'm going to give them to you, my people, to enjoy and to occupy. And so what is true in a temporal sense of the conquest of Canaan is true in the eternal sense for Christ's disciples. The promise of glory, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth is one of abundance, one of unspeakable joy, one of perfect satisfaction in Christ. He says, you and I are gonna recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're gonna feast with them. That's what's in store for us. That's what is being gathered up for us. So we have to work in this fallen world. We have to work in this fallen condition. And our work here in this present life, as you well know, is mingled with sorrow and with hardship. And that's because of the fall. But think about it the other way. Think about the flip side of that. By God's sheer goodness, our toil, our labor is also mixed with mercy. It's mixed with blessings more abundant than we can count, and far, far better than we deserve. So we ought to find contentment as we entrust our souls to a faithful Redeemer. Let me close with just a couple of quick points of application. First of all, work diligently and accumulate wealth to the extent that Christ blesses you. And as you do, and as you work, and as you accumulate wealth, what then? Well, number one, give. Pay God first. Tithe. Number two, live. Enjoy God's blessing, God's provision for you, his portion. And three, give again. In other words, be generous. Beyond the tithe that Scripture calls upon us to give to the Lord, give to others as they have need. Be generous. And secondly, this passage, if it calls us to do anything, it calls us to live the life of faith, to do everything that you do as unto Christ and for his glory. That's doing the work of the Lord. People came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, the work of God is be his disciple. Serve him. C.T. Studd served him in China. He served him in Africa. He served him in India. You can serve Christ any of those places. You can also serve Christ in South Carolina, by the way. You can serve Christ in Beaufort. You can serve him on Ladies Island or in Habersham. Wherever you serve, serve him. Because as C.T. Studd wrote, only what's done for Christ will last. Solomon says over and over again, all is vanity. But as we continue through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that he's driving us to a conclusion that resonates with the words 
of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. You want to find labor that's not in vain? Well, then, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ we can work and is not in vain. Lord, may we labor uh, for that, not which is perishes, but for the food that doesn't perish. May we store up treasure in heaven. May we serve you and do your work and let it not be in vain. And we're bold to pray this because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.